I was trying to fall asleep one night during the early days of the COVID lockdown, and I heard this noise. It was kind of high-pitched and whiny, and it kept going up and coming down and going up and coming down. And I realized that the sound was coming from outside. So I opened up my window, and I heard this woman screaming, help me, please, somebody help me, help me. And so I started to run down the hallway. My roommate heard this as well. He was running down the hallway. We went down nine flights of stairs, ran outside, and there was this woman kind of sprawled out on the sidewalk. There was blood everywhere. Her lip was split. Her eye was really swollen. And about 20 feet away was this man, her boyfriend. He was drunk out of his mind. He was pacing and screaming at her. He had been hitting her, and that's why she was in this state. My roommate and I, we basically just stood between the boyfriend and the woman at this point. Another Tyndale student was there as well. We just kind of stood between them. The guy wasn't liking it. He was getting in our face and yelling. I thought he was going to hit one of us pretty soon. And then several police cruisers came in. The guy tried to run away. He tumbled over in a ditch. Uh, they put the cuffs on him. Justice was served. But here is the saddest part of that whole evening. While the police were arresting him, the woman got up, battered and bruised, pushed herself up from her own pile of blood, and she ran over and tried to stop the police from arresting him. She didn't want them to put him in the cruiser. She refused to give a statement to the police about what happened. She wouldn't let the paramedics take her into an ambulance and, and help her out. And I was told that this very, very likely is not the first time that a violent encounter has taken place here. And if anything changes, it's likely to continue. This woman could be freed from this relationship with this horrible, evil, abusive, wicked, weak, pathetic man who had no business being with her and stewarding the heart of a child of God, but she chose to remain in this horrible relationship. For the next couple weeks, I would walk by that patch of the sidewalk. The blood was still there, and I would pray and ask God that he would give her freedom. Do you know what's crazy, though? We do this, too. We do this very same thing. We justify, defend, and accommodate our sin. We defend the things that harm us. We give reasons for its presence in our own lives, though it does nothing for us and always leaves us empty, battered, bruised, and broken. Do you know what this relationship feels like? Always feeling worse off than when you first went to it, never satisfied. It's like having a big meal at McDonald's. You get back to your car and you're still hungry. Now, this was true of us before we were in Christ. We were enslaved to sin marked by this fallen state of humanity, serving a fallen master, creating a false kingdom and walking in false habits of life. But now, since our justification, as a result of this, we Christians enjoy a new status, a new nature, a new power, and a new way of life. Here's the challenge. As definitive and final, as our new status, our new identity is, we are declared new, righteous, pure, clean. Romans 1, uh, not Romans 1.18, Isaiah 1.18 says, 
Come, let us reason. Though your sins are like scarlet, you will be made white as wool. Though all of this is true, we still are not free from the contact and influence of the powers of this age. And so believers bring with them into this new life many of our old habits, traits, and patterns of life itself. So Jesus may live in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. Transformation is not immediate, and we're stuck in this in-between wrestle. So the question that we're going to try and answer today is this. How can I walk in new patterns of life when I have old habits of sin? How can I find freedom when I'm still attached to some of my old ways? And so last week, we looked at the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 6, looking at our new identity that we have in Christ. Paul was saying, we have been baptized, we have been immersed into Jesus. And so now his death is our death. Your old self is gone, it's dead, it remains no longer. And our new lives, we have been raised up with Christ himself as well. So you're a new creation. God's message to us was, that's not you. That's not you anymore. This week, we're actually looking at how do we live this out? How do we live out this new freedom of our renewal? What are the patterns of this new life? What are the habits of the believers? What are the new markings of our lifestyle itself? Sin is no longer our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. Sin no longer controls me. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Because of our new nature, we have our new identity. That was last week. And new people live in new ways. This consists of two parts. There's a negative and a positive side of this point. What we are, uh, pardon me, what we are freed from and what we are freed for. And Paul reminded us in verse 11 to calculate this, do the math, look at the truth of the implication of our right standing with God. We now have a new identity. Now going forward, we're looking at how does this new believer walk in these new patterns of life. So my goal today is this. I'm going to try and lead us into territory where the enemy has set up camp. I'm going to punch the devil in the mouth and we're going to try and get out unscathed. Sin talk is never popular. It's not popular to talk about our sin. The people who talk about sin, uh, you know, right living, proper behavior, those are the, you know, kind of the strict people, the lamos, the killjoys, the buzzkills. They're not fun to be around. Sin talk is for the people on the street corner yelling about hell. Sin talk is for the bigots. Sin talk is not for a church in a cosmopolitan, postmodern context, you know, trying to be all things to all people and bring in a, a pluralistic world. If that's how you feel, I can really sympathize with that. There's been plenty of weird Christian stuff I've seen in my day. I've seen a lot of harm and abuse done to people in the name of, you know, fighting sin. But perhaps I can also give you a little bit of comfort, a little bit of consolation. At the same time that the church, um, at least in the context where I grew up, has retreated from the language of sin, I've seen kind of in parallel, in tandem, another pattern emerge in popular culture. And that is a red hot fixation on justice, identifying evils in the world, harmful marginalizing practices by big institutions, by individuals, how actions can have unintended consequences consequences that hurt marginalized groups. And so we've been focusing a lot on 
harmful behaviors of individuals. Maybe not always our own, but at least what's out there. Also, there's been this ravenous discontentment with ourselves and this multi-billion dollar industry has arisen. People go to conferences, they buy books and products and courses and pills and all these things to improve themselves because we're not happy with where we are. So our culture has developed this focus on stopping evil in the world and improving ourselves and the church has bunted its inheritance, talking about the new life and ushering in the kingdom of God at the risk of perhaps being a little bit, uh, you know, not wanting to be awkward or weird or incorrect. And so we've given up on this inheritance. So let me encourage you that this may not be as crazy as you think. And also perhaps encourage you that this is worth our time. John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. How many more prominent Christian leaders need to fall, need to have public failings, need to have scandals coming forward before we will take this seriously? How many more people do we have to harm, including ourselves, before we take this seriously? Today is just a piece of the puzzle. It's just one part of this thing that Paul's going to be talking about for three chapters. So let's get into it. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, this is referring to verse 11, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you Oh, that was my finger. To make you obey its passions. There's a couple things that worth, are worth explaining here. First, when you see this term reign, think rule. Think the, the ruling, the dominance of a, of a king in a kingdom, of a ruler in a land. Let not sin, therefore, rule in your mortal body. You could think of your physical body. It's actually broader than that. It's the totality of the content of your life. Think of it like a body of literature. Don't let it rule in your mortal body. Don't let sin rule in your mortal body. What is sin? One of the words that's used to describe sin in the Bible is hamartia. That's actually a, a term from archery. It simply means to miss the mark. To miss the mark of how God would have us live. And you can think of it in two ways. There's the sins of omission and the sins of commission. Not doing what you should, like honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Or commission is doing what you ought not. And it's easy to think of these only as isolated behaviors, right? But actually, it's easier to think of these more as symptoms from the wrong way of living itself. Let me, let me kind of explain this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus talks about, hey, you've heard these commands before but I'm actually going for something much deeper. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you this, if you have hate in your heart for your brother, you're guilty of the same thing. Really? I didn't kill the guy, but I still have anger in my heart and that bothers you just as much. He says, yes, that's equally missing the mark of how God's people are supposed to live, of how the kingdom of heaven is supposed to operate. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, You've done the same thing. So this is much broader, this ruling. And we see here, don't let sin rule in your mortal body. Why? To make you obey its passions. 
there's a, there's a good quote that kind of explains how one leads to the other. What's on the inside comes forth out of the outside. We've heard out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's a great explanation of this by Augustine. The language was kind of clunky and old school. So I found something similar by the American writer, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He says this, Sow a thought and you will reap an action. You sow seeds and you reap a harvest. Sow a thought and reap an action. Phase one. Sow an action and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. But this helps explain this fact that what you think you do, what you do you repeat, what you repeat becomes who you are, and who you are points to your ultimate destination. Now, it's easy to think that God only cares about the destiny part. Christians just get a free ticket to go into heaven, and then we chill for the rest of our lives. It would be very strange if God only cared about this, but didn't care about all the other parts as well. God is not fashioning for himself a group of people who will one day be with him in heaven, and until they join him there, are just going to stay put, you know, knuckle it, white knuckle, grit our teeth, and just try and be better people because Jesus is letting us get into heaven. Not at all. God is forming a new kingdom with a new people. So, how can I walk in new patterns of life when I have old patterns of sin? This is the first response. Don't give in to a dying master. Verse 11 said from last week, that we have been set free from our sin. We have a new identity. Our old self has died. Verse 12 said, don't let it rule in your body to make you do what it wants, to make you obey its passions, to make you think and act, form habits, character, and destiny as well. Don't give in to it. Here's uh, an interesting parallel of this. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln declared the, uh, no, it was, pardon me, Abraham declared the Emancipation Proclamation, and as early as the very first day of 1863, all of the slaves in the United States were freed. And this proclamation went out across Capitol Hill, throughout Washington, to Pennsylvania, it went down to Alabama, and Mississippi, and Missouri, and all those places. But many slaves still remained on the plantations, because they couldn't understand what that meant. Many of them had been born into slavery, and when they heard you're free, they heard it, understood it, didn't know the implications of it, and remained for a long time. It took a long time for these proclamations to actually be put into place. And so what was a tragedy to begin with, the slavery of human beings, was multiplied by those now staying in this place when they didn't have to. If a person with the power an insight, an interest, and willingness to set the captives free does so, it makes very little difference until they know that their freedom has been decreed and they know what that means and they take the steps to do it. So how can I be free? How can I walk in new patterns of life when I have old patterns of sin? Don't give in to a dying master. Now, how do we do that? How do we not give in? How do we not let sin reign and rule in our lives? Let's keep going on to verses 13 and 14. 
do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Wow, that's a bad line. Remembers to God <laughs> as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. When you see dominion, think domination. Sin will not dominate over you since you are not under law, but under grace. We've been brought from an old place to a new one, an old kingdom to a new kingdom, an old form of humanity to a new form of humanity. And of those many changes, one of them is this, we're no longer, no longer under the same set of rules. We're not under law, but under grace. Now it's interesting. I like some of the language here. A couple things. First, when you see members, think of the totality of your being, your mind, your intellect, your imagination, your will, your time and your strength, yourself, all you've got, your members, the parts of your person. Do not present your members to sin. Present is interesting because presenting is posturing. How do you present yourself? How do you point? How do you orient? How do you point yourself in different directions? Don't point yourself now to sin as if it were your rightful ruler. Rather, you're under new reign. Enlist yourself now to your rightful ruler, God himself. This doesn't show Christianity just as something that you think, that you check off on a box and you go on with your life. This is a truth that actually has to be embodied. I was talking with Pastor Dave last week about this passage. And he pointed out many Christians forget uh, that we're actually called to change the world. We're not called to contribute to sin's destruction and domination. By staying in sin, there are horizontal and there are vertical dimensions. Sorry, I did horizontal with my hand up. There are dimensions vertically and horizontally to our sin. One of the horizontal dimensions, one of the implications of our sin, is that we contribute to, sin, to sin's death, reign, and destruction here on earth. But we who are in Christ now, we're no longer doing this. We're not presenting ourselves to sin for its marching orders and its mission. We're not serving a master who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. We're serving the master who has come to redeem, to heal, to dignify those who have been discarded and disfranchised. We're called to bring life to a broken world. I love this language of patterns. This language of presenting, of orienting ourselves, Because I think if we get this wrong, we can fall into something that I call the cycle of doom. If we think that the Christian life is just doing the correct one-off behaviors, it's just not doing this bad thing. This is a pattern that I've experienced and it's very frustrating. I try really, really, really hard not to do this action. Maybe I succeed for a day, a week, two weeks. You fall back into it. 
and haven't fallen back into it, now I'm distraught, I'm exhausted, I'm frustrated with myself, and I'm overcome with just all this anger. And so I try one more time, I grit down, I flex really, really, really hard. Maybe I'm successful for another short period of time, but I fail and fall yet again. I become cynical, frustrated with the whole thing. Eventually I become so exhausted and just throw up my hands and say, what's the point? This is not what's being presented here. We didn't have the power to overcome our sin in the first place. That's why we came to Jesus. So it's strange for me to think that now that I do have a life in Christ, that now I can still do this on my own. I couldn't do it on my own to start with. I went to Jesus in the first place. Why do I think it's any different now? This is saying, present yourself to God and sin will dominate you no longer. We are what we repeatedly do. We live in patterns and habits of life. There's actually, when we talk about the structure of a worship service, a time of worship, we call it a liturgy. What is the pattern of the service? But you can think of our life as these liturgical exercises, these patterns of worship, the different areas and ways that we are presenting ourselves in contributing to the old kingdom or the new kingdom of heaven. So how can I walk in new patterns of life when I have old habits of sin? Focusing on your direction, not your perfection. God will perfect you. That's his job. Leave that up to him. But we need to focus on how are we presenting ourselves? Am I positioning myself underneath the waterfall of God's grace? Am I living in a way that's allowing his spirit to work in me and through me? Or am I inhibiting this? Am I presenting myself as an instrument of sin? So I actually want to give you a second to think about this because I'm worried that the sermon's done, the song's over, and life continues on with its demanding pace. So there's three questions that I would love for you to pray about and think about and we'll leave time for it. The three questions are this. First, I want you to ask yourself, where am I not walking in freedom? Ask the Spirit to illuminate this to you. Perhaps uh, you're dissatisfied with your spouse and you find your mind and your eyes wandering. Are you coveting your friend who has a higher salary than you and more creature comforts? Are you not Sabbathing? Are you close-fisted with your finances, unwilling to give to the church, to those around you, to the causes that God is bringing across your path? Are you judgmental, condescending, and critical of those who are a little bit more annoying in your life, but God equally has grace for? Perhaps you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend and you're not walking in purity together. You're not married and not trusting where God has said these are good gifts for this place as well. Where are you not walking in freedom? Second, ask yourself this, what lie am I believing? Because right thinking promotes right living. So if we're believing false things, we're probably going to be living out false things as well. So see, this is, this is a harder one, but think about this. What lie am I believing that's contributing to me not walking in freedom? Here are a couple. Here's one lie. I'm missing out. I won't be satisfied if I don't do this. I don't have enough. I'm not good enough. My faith isn't strong enough to overcome this. This is, this is going to be too hard. I can't change. This is just who I am. I'm not forgiven. 
God doesn't care about this. It's not a big deal. I'm fine as I am. That's the question, the next question. What lie am I believing? What unbelief am I holding on to that's contributing to this behavior? Thirdly, how am I positioning myself? How am I presenting myself? Am I presenting myself to sin or to God? What habits, what rhythms of life am I occupying that dictate whether I'm presenting myself to God or not? Here are a couple things. Are you in community for accountability, for growth, for teaching, to be edified and rebuked? Are you in close-knit proximity with people who know you and can call foul when they see you living according to your old self? Are you in a life group? Are you in a huddle? Who are you doing life with that you've given them a hunting pass? You've said, hey man, it's open season on me. Do what you need to. Help God refine me. Help me present myself to him. Are there people in your life that you have given permission to to ask the hard questions? What's the first thing that you do every day? This is an interesting one. What's the first thing you do? Do you know what I do? My default is to grab, you know, a glowing rectangle. The first thing I want to do is grab my phone and look at what the world has for me. But I find I'm walking, I'm presenting myself in the best rhythms of life when I let that be and I give the first fruits of my day and the first fruits of my mind to what God has for me. So how are you using your time? What's the first thing you do with your day? What's the last thing you do with your day? What are you reflecting on? What content are you putting in? How are you training your appetites for what is true, good, noble, right, lovely, praiseworthy? So if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4, 8. We as the body of Christ aren't defined by being a group of people that are trying to put on a nice moral appearance but still contributing to the rule and reign of sin on this planet. But we're marked as a group of people put together for each other to help orient ourselves, present ourselves to God as instruments for his righteousness and walking out his good purposes, his life and love in this new kingdom on earth. So let's reflect on three questions. Where am I not walking in freedom? What lie am I believing? And how am I positioning myself? My prayer for you is that God's Spirit would speak to you today, that you would hear His voice, and that we would be humble and receptive to the great truths that we have seen in His Word today.